This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Dick Miller. If you're listening to Junk Food Cinema, who are these guys? I bet you if you got every rat in town together and said, show your hands if any of them have actually seen Shocking Dark, you'd get a crowd of full pockets. If you've got knives in your eyes, you better go home sick. You see, we pick our teeth with ninjas. And if you think we take a powder when Fast Five hits the tube, you're scratching at the wrong door. So we'll tell you with the tale of Miklo and Battle Truck like a couple of cads. But before we start the show, you better be sure you want to know what you want to know. Here on Junk Food Cinema, brought to you by FilmSchoolRejects.com. Dot prepared intros are always the longest intros. Welcome, everybody, to the weekly cult and exploitation film cast. So good, it just has to be fattening. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, and I'm joined, as per usual, and thanks to the miracle of technology by my friend and co-host, he's a novelist, he's a screenwriter, Lieutenant of Megaforce, Mr. C. Robert Cargill. Hi. How's it going, man? It's uh, it's going. It's, uh, it is another week of doing this without being in the same room. Sad face. It is very sad, and yet somehow... We managed to keep our spirits up. I don't know how we do it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> we will find out in this episode. Uh, but before we get into it, let me take care of a little bit of the business. And that is to let you know that our entire back catalog is on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on Spreaker. It's on Stitcher. It's on Dasher and Dancer and all of the other John Frankenheimer films. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. Like the podcast on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. And if you really like the show, I mean, you really like the show. If you like the show more than Ryan Johnson, like Sing Sing archaic lingo you can go to patreon.com slash junk food cinema for as little as a dollar an episode you get access to bonus content that nobody else gets to hear and cargill there was a time a time back in the day pre-pandemic pre-pre-pandemic the the all or nothing days the long long ago where we had a tier and this tier was called the lieutenants of megaforce and if you gave it this highest of tiers for a certain amount of time you actually got to tell us what we were going to cover for that week and it was great until we grossly underestimated how many of you would take advantage of this tier and we had to shut it down because you were too generous it's it's the best reason to have to shut something down but today we are scratching a patron request off our list this is actually from a patron named zach seeker who requested a little film called brick this isn't good no emily said words i didn't know tell me if they catch brick no tug Tug might be a drink, like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So you didn't know this boy? 
No, sir. Never seen him. Man, he just hit you. But he asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. You're coming into a certain situation. It's twisted. I'm looking for Emily. You left her? Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know what you want to know. Complicated. Everyone's got their thing. In the upper crust, the shady deeds, they've got symbols so they can tell each other that we're getting around. Coffee and pie. Coffee and pie? Oh, my. Keep up with me now. You got a cigarette? I don't smoke. I've seen you smoke. I don't smoke cigarettes. I thought we had orange juice. I'm sorry. Water's fine, ma'am. Thanks. Oh, wait a minute. We have apple juice. It's country style. If I get to the bottom, whatever this is. What do you want? Just to see you sweat. When it gets too hot. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. I see that you're trying to help her. And I don't know anybody who would do that for me. You are dangerous. I set out to know, put her on the spot. And put her in front of the gun. There's not much chance of coming out clean. Now, Cargo, I feel like the director of this movie might have gone on to some bigger things. He might be somewhat of a household name. Little bit. Little, little bit. Um, yeah, no, I've, uh, uh, and he's also uh, a longtime friend. Uh, I've known him for a very, very long time. Uh, in fact, um, we met the night of the, the South by Southwest world premiere of Brick. Um, a little backstory on Ryan Johnson is he is, he came up at USC with three other filmmakers and I was good friends with one of them, Kevin Ford, who was dating Angela Bettis at the time. And we would go out with them regularly. Uh, but he also came up with another gentleman named Lucky McKee, who you may know uh, from the movie, you know, uh, from uh, director of may and the woman uh, and Chris Siebertson, who directed a notoriously amazing film called I know who killed me. Um, that, uh, I think we're split on, right, Brian? I'm sorry. You just referred to it as notoriously amazing. Yes. I would agree with half of that descriptor. Amazing, right? That's the part that you, you identify with. We're, we're clear on this. Uh, sure. Um, it is, uh, I would love to do an episode on this at some point. Uh, but, uh, I have, I have a huge affinity for that movie, but so they, um, they, they were like, uh, you know, hey, our, our friend Ryan has a new movie opening up. Uh, we're going to get together after the premiere. And so we sat out at the a place called The Littlest Bar in Texas, uh, which is this tiny, tiny little bar with a bunch of uh, um, uh, uh, picnic tables and sat and drank beer and talked writing and, and, and filmmaking uh, uh, back back in 2006. And uh, then he would come to Fantastic Fest a couple of times. He would come to Buttonumathon a bunch. And so me and Ryan became two guys who would stand outside of movies and smoke cigarettes and 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 complain about whatever we just saw or gush over it or what have you. And so I've known him for a long time and have watched his career skyrocket and go from being the guy making this cool little kind of indie noir film up to making one of the biggest movies in the world and most divisive movies of the last 10 years, uh, and then going on to doing really amazing things after that with knives out. And so it's been, it's been a hell of a ride to watch him, 
ascend in this way. And I'm so, so thrilled that we get to go back to the roots because I think once you've seen Knives Out, once you've taken in the Brothers Bloom, once you've kind of wrapped your head around what he was doing with Looper, going back and re-examining Brick lays out exactly what kind of filmmaker Ryan is and what he excels at that no one else in the industry does. So today, in preparation for this episode, I not only revisited Brick, which is a movie I already loved, but I I went and I watched The Brothers Bloom because I realized it was the only Ryan Johnson film I hadn't seen. And yeah, after watching it, I can tell you straight up, Ryan Johnson is one of my favorite directors working today. He has never made a film that I don't like. Yeah, he that Brothers Bloom is one that I hope we cover eventually because it is a shit upon masterpiece. It it was it played. I think it premiered at Fantastic Fest. It blew the mm-hmm. doors off uh, everything there, and then the mainstream press just shut it down and did not dig it, and it did not do particularly great. And we were all scratching our heads because we were just like, "This fuck, this film's fucking amazing. What the fuck are you talking about?" Um. And uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm so glad you got to watch that because that movie's fucking fantastic. It, it really is. And I got to say, like when you referred to I Know Who Killed Me as notoriously amazing, I feel like that could describe Brian Johnson. I feel like he has made a lot of films that have sort of divided rooms. But every single one that I have seen, which is now all of his films, I have really loved. And, and I'm fortunate enough that. You know, I I haven't known him as long as you have, but every time he comes to town, he's one of the few filmmakers of his status that will come to town. And before I say anything, will say, hello, Brian, like he remembers who I am. Uh, I interviewed him way back uh, when when he was doing the, the rounds for Looper, but I had already seen Brick by that point. And what I love so much about Brick is that if if you guys know anything about me, and I'm sure I can speak for Cargill on this, too, is that I am ob obsessed with film noir it is one of my favorite genres and anytime you can take film noir you know which is a a, a, you know when we say film noir we're, we're referring to a very specific type of filmmaking we're talking about the dark seedy crime films of the 1940s and anytime you can capsule you know encapsulate that and move it to a different era or or set it within a different genre i am always going to be on board and that's probably my favorite thing about brick is how he's able to make a film noir set at a high school. Yeah, no, this is, this is a Chandler movie. Um, This is very much Raymond Chandler. It is, it captures the aesthetic of the, uh, uh, of the old uh, gangster movies of the old detective movies of the thirties and forties and early fifties. But it also, while capturing that it transposes it perfectly into 2005, California, and sets it in a high school and plays all the tropes. And this is one of the things that Ryan truly excels at, that nobody else does what he does. He immerses himself in a genre and he loves it. And he only writes about stuff that he absolutely loves. So, you know, uh, with Knives Out, he he's a huge, huge mystery nerd. As he's said publicly many times, if there's a procedural on television, he'll watch that over an Oscar movie. Like, he just loves mysteries. And uh, he decided he wanted to write his own. So he created something new in that piece. It wasn't just imitation. It was evolution. And that's what he does here. He doesn't just imitate the noir. He evolves it by setting it in a high school, by playing around with the aesthetic, by having all of the crime make sense for a high school and have it work within 
the world that he's set up, he creates this amazing crime world in the way that, you know, people like Chandler used to fictionalized in, in the old days. And he creates something really unique that there is nothing else like, and you kind of want to see more of. And that is very much what Brick is. I mean, could this be any more Chandler? Did I say that out loud? You know what uh, you just reminded me of? We haven't done any business yet. No, we totally have. No, we did all the business up top. Oh, well, there we go. All right. We have gone back (laughs) in time. Now you've just loopered me. Jesus Christ. No, no, we we definitely did it. In fact, you even had your signature if you really like the show. I think you might have gone to sleep after that and re- reawakened at this point. I think past Cargill somehow came into the room and tried to shoot current Cargill. That, I don't know what the fuck just happened there. That, that may have happened. Okay, well, back to Looper. Time travel has not yet been invented. Or brick. This isn't good. It's weird that when we got done with the business, you had all these gold bars taped to your back. I'm not sure what that's about, but I better grab my blunderbuss. And that actually brings me to a good point. So your your brain fart, Cargill, has brought me to a really uh, specific point that I wanted to make is that one of the things I've, I love about Ryan Johnson is that he has this obsession with anachronisms. He has this obsession with putting things from bygone eras into films that have far surpassed them. I mean, for example, is the fact that the guns in Looper are called blunderbusses. And I also love movies that have their own language. And this movie, it has its own dense volumes of archaic dialogue. And there's a lyricism in the lingo. I mean, you could refer to it as sonorous slang or uh, a jaunty jive in the jargon. There's just there. There's a a lyricism to it. This pot's called reform with more hop in his head than blood. I'll pay for dirt you can't believe. I've got knives in my eyes. I'm going home sick. But I bet you, you got every rat in town together and said, show your hands if any of them actually seen the pin. You get a crowd of full pockets. So at first, tip the bulls? Nah, bulls, gum it. Don't at me if you want, Hashhead. I got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. After I watched this and made and wrote down, you know, that note, I went immediately to watching Brothers Bloom and the whole opening is Ricky Jay doing like a Dr. Seuss riff on the background of the Brothers Bloom. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is a this is a Ryan Johnson thing. Mm hmm. Absolutely is. Ryan Ryan is obsessed with language and how it works, which is why if it's why Knives Out is is so rewatchable because you catch little little moments here and there um uh, of it. It's it's a much more mainstream version of it, but he's hidden all this clever stuff in the dialogue. He's such a fastidious writer in that way and it's why all of his narratives are so tight. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. And how he does it here is so great. It is very sing-songy. It is, I guarantee you, he sat, uh, I mean, he, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is one of his closest friends, as is Noah Segan, who plays uh, uh, Dode here. Um, and they are, they they appear in all of his films and, and in some way, shape, or form. Um, right down to Brothers Bloom, you know, the tracking shot crosses Joseph Gordon-Levitt just so he can be in Ryan's movie. Uh, but I guarantee you Ryan sat down uh, 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 Levitt and uh, Gordon-Levitt and said, okay, watch this film, this film, this film, and this film. But don't pay attention to the plot. Just be listening to the dialogue. Just listen to how they're saying the dialogue. I want that rhythm. I want that song. Because there is a special lyricism to the way those old gangster movies worked and those old noirs worked. 
Um, that was the aesthetic that was dropped by neo-noir. I mean, that's what I find so interesting about this. Um, is that, uh, you know, neo-noir kept the, the lighting elements, neo-noir kept, you know, the, the various ways that, you know, the femme fatale and the way the structure of the thing worked, but it dropped the sing-songy narrative of it because that's what they felt was dated. And so that's what, uh, he picks up and runs with here and makes this such a magical movie. I don't think, this movie as a noir set in even with the same plot without that dialogue resonates in the same way that this does. I feel that it feels, it would feel like it's a bit of a stretch and we would be too rooted in the reality of it. But by doing the dialogue the way he does, we accept that we're watching a noir and we allow that this high school could be this violent and have this big of a drug trade, that this would be a thing. And I think that that absolutely 100% is the glue that cements this entire wonderful movie together. All of his films feel like you could blink for a second and forget what time period the movie is set in. I mean, just watching Brothers Bloom, because of the way he uses costumes, because of the way he uses language and sets, you forget what time period the movies take place in sometimes. You forget that they're contemporary. For example, watching Brothers Bloom, there's a shot where helicopters start flying over this museum. And I was like, oh, that's right. This isn't the 1920s. Because of the way the brothers are, are dressed, because of the way the ships look that they are traveling on, because of the language in the movie, I forget that they're contemporary. And, and that's kind of the greatest trick that Ryan Johnson ever pulled is convincing the world that calendars never existed. Yeah, yeah, no, and and you see that in Knives Out as well. Knives Absolutely. Out is one of those movies that if they don't mention, um, you know, if they don't mention having read about a, a tweet about it, you would think this could have taken place in the eighties. Yeah, and I mean it's a classic style whodunit. So I mean you're you're thinking back to Agatha Christie. You're not thinking about you know 2019. It's it's just not even entering your mind because of the way that he draws you into these worlds and uses language and uses sets, uses costumes, uses music to kind of build that eerie. Dis temporal displacement as you're watching films. And, and that's one of the things I love most about Brick. And Brick also has the added element of it seems like it takes place at David Lynch High on Planet Film Noir. Like all of these kids that he talks to have their own weird shit going on long before the inciting incident of this film. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of my favorite elements about this movie is that every time we meet the football player Jock, um, he's telling, uh, he's telling a rapture, a rapt audience, um, the story about coach put me in, but the coach won't put me in. And he's literally just making a big theatrical thing about the coach won't play him and how he would, they could actually win games if they would play him. And, and this character pops because of it. Like it's such a weird character quirk. It's such a weird thing, but it totally works in the, in the vibe of what they're doing because he's actually he's borrowing an old trope of um of noir films and updating it for the school in a way that just feels like it works and i'm so fascinated by how every character in the school has that weird element to them um well he's also delivering monologues like something out of a greek chorus like he's you know what he is he's basically mercutio throughout this whole movie where he's just fucking going off on these tirades about like he's boasting, but he's also, you know, there's again, a sing songiness to what he's saying. And it just, it reminded me so much of like Mercutio's lines at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, where he just starts talking about 
you know, Queen Mab has been with you and this, that, and the other, and just like riffing off of himself and, and so much in the, in the wings of the rest of the story that it's just like, Oh, and now we're, now we're back to this character again. And, and I love that about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's such a crazy, so let's, let's lay out what is going on here. Cause it is, it's such a wonderfully crazy convoluted, um, yet tightly woven narrative. Um, when everything is explained in the final moments of the film, like it's literally, we have the confrontation where we lay out the mystery, we get the final pieces put in and everything falls together. But as it's going, it seems like pure chaos because it plays on the old tropes. You know, we have a we we have a setup of a mystery. We have we have the dame that comes in that wants that needs his help uh, and he decides to help her. But then she doesn't want his help anymore. And then the dame turns up dead. And now he's investigating her death because she meant something to him. And in doing so, Stuck follows a red herring, you know, and uh, we get a character that we think it plays much bigger, but was really the red herring all along and was really just being used as a patsy to be the red herring. And then we find out we are in deep with this drug lord called the Pin. And the Pin is a 26-year-old uh, uh, guy who lives with his mother and runs the drug trade at the local high school. And it's so great how we get this perspective from the high schoolers that he's this big fucking deal. And we're looking at him and we're like, you're just a loser 26 year old who lives in his mother's basement that sells drugs to high school kids. Uh, yeah, they're all they're all telling us we should be afraid of you, but I am pretty sure I'm trusting my own eyes here. And you were in Solar Babies, so <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I'm as intimidated. But I do love that line where they're like, "He's really old, like 26," and yeah. you know, because that's that's what they would consider old when they're in high school. And I also love that the we're talking about the drug trade, and he's this drug kingpin. And what is he predominantly selling? Weed. Weed is what he's predominantly selling because when you're in high school, that's the hardest drug you can conceive of. And uh, by the way, we're talking the the kingpin is played by Lucas Haas, uh, a junk food alum from uh, when our Leap of Faith episode, um, where he played the crippled boy early in the '90s, and here he is 15 years later playing the pin. I feel like Lucas Haas is one of those, give it another year and he'll definitely be a junk food cinema alum. There's so many movies of his that I'm like, why haven't we covered Mars Attacks? We'll probably cover Solar Babies at some point. Like just going through his entire filmography, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of movies here that we'll probably cover. But so far, I think you're right. I think the only one we've covered is Leap of Faith. So that's a that's a little bit surprising to me. But he's got a, a number of films in his catalog that definitely deserve uh, the junk food cinema treatment. But Cargo, you mentioned Noah Segan, and I'm so glad that you did because I actually tweeted today that, well, it looks like we're covering a Ryan Johnson film this week. I'll give you a hint. Noah Segan's in it. Uh, <laughs> because he's because literally... Noah Segan is in all of them. <laughs> he's in all of them, like right down to uh, The Last Jedi where he's just in one scene writing. He's one of the, uh, the Alliance pilots like riding on a like a personnel carrier out of the shot it's like he's in the shot he's out of the shot he doesn't have a line camera doesn't focus on him but i saw him and i was like okay he's technically been in all of ryan johnson's movies well done he's a named uh, but, character as well 
he is a named character. There could potentially be an action figure of Noah Segan's character from The Last Jedi. Now, I met Noah actually at the uh, at the junket for Looper, and he had. I remember this because I sat in the lobby with you know other film critics waiting to interview Ryan, and I just struck up a conversation with this guy. We were uh, you know having a, having a great time talking to each other, and then I realized who he was. Like I didn't even dawn up because he wasn't there to be interviewed. He had come there like on his own dime to support Ryan to support the movie. Uh, the the publicist hadn't even made him part of the uh, you know of the junket. He was just there to to support Ryan. So it didn't even dawn on me that he was somebody from the movie and. We've struck up this friendship that throughout the years, we keep kind of crossing each other's paths when it's very eerie. And I would love to publish a book about this. I've done a series of interviews with the two of us where every time we cross paths, our lives are very, very similar to one another's. Like he's gone through a lot of the same things that I have almost at the exact same time. And uh, by the way, kudos, he just uh, he just became a father. So congratulations. Mazel to Noah. Noah. So it's just it's crazy because every time we would talk, it's like, yeah, no, I went through that same thing. Oh, that's so weird how like our our lives kind of parallel in different uh, in different career fields. Uh, so I'm always excited to go back and, and watch uh, Noah in anything. And it just makes me happy to revisit Ryan Johnson movies, knowing that he's going to turn up. And I love his character here because he is goth rocked out. He is. He looks in this movie like he's going to avenge the sevenfold and maybe strike up his chemical romance. I'm not sure, but he is just like he's this complete like burnout goth rock kind of looking dude and there's one of the greatest lines in the movie happens after he's refusing to give up information that uh joseph gordon levitt or as i will forever call him jogo levy lev uh jogo levy lev wants information dode's not giving it up so he just punches dode right in the face and all of dode's burnout friends start advancing upon him and uh jogo says Throw one at me if you want, Hashhead. I've got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on a lot of you. And it's just like, I don't know what just happened, but I think uh, James Cagney just threatened us. So we're going to take a step back. <laughs> that scene is fucking amazing. So good. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no. I've known Noah for a long time as well. Like, uh, I've known him from back in the early Fantastic Best days. He brought this crazy fucking divisive film to that he starred in uh, to Fantastic Fest called Dead Girl. Um, which is JT. What are you talking about? JT? I've never seen dead girl. JT, JT, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think that movie holds the record for the most times a character in a movie says the name of the other character in the movie. Yeah. You're not a fan of that one. If I remember, I, I'm not a fan. No. And, and I've talked to know about that. In fact, I've made that same joke to him. It's like, why is half the dialogue just saying the other character's name? I enjoy that movie, but it's 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 not a movie I would highly recommend because of its the tasteless concept of it. Sure. Um, it is it is not for everyone. It is one of those that is like, oh, that's that crazy movie about the jackasses who find a very attractive zombie and then find things to do to said zombie and then things go terribly wrong. Yeah, because if there's one word that doesn't ably describe this podcast, it's tasteless. That is true. Let's talk about the rest of the cast, because the rest of the cast is also fucking amazing. Um, we've got uh, we've got the the uh, uh, the 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 dead girl, if you will, uh, <laughs> Emily Raven, who most of you will know from Lost. Um, and uh, she then went on and I think it was Once Upon a Time. Is that what the TV show was called? She followed it up with. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the actors in this movie found a lot of success on TV shortly after this film. Matt O'Leary, uh, who plays Brain in the movie, which is one of my favorite fucking characters 
Uh, Matt O'Leary uh, actually is in a lot of movies that we've covered on this show. He's he was in Death Sentence. Uh, he was also in Frailty. Uh, so just a number of things. But he's on. Uh, he has a role in Agents of Shield. Uh, there are other people in this movie that you know. Were, again, just just television success all around in this cast. Then you've got Megan Good, who is a junk food alum. Uh, she was in Eve's Bayou. Um, yep. I actually. I'm a big Megan Good fan. In fact, one of my movie days back in the day I programmed was called Surprisingly Good, which was um, three films back to back that all had Megan Good in supporting roles that people kind of shit upon, but were actually really good. Um, and I feel like that also describes season one of Junk Food Cinema <laughs> could have been called Surprisingly Good. I mean, there, there's some films that, that I showed on that day that I want to I would love to do an episode on Roll Bounce. Because uh, I think Roll Bounce is a fantastic fucking film. Uh, I really like uh, Biker Boys. I think Biker Boys is a movie that got shit on because it wasn't Fast and the Furious and it wasn't trying to be Fast and the Furious. Uh, but she is great in both of those. I feel like you just you just when you said Biker Boys, I could hear the junkie on scratching at my door, like desperately wanting us to cover that cover Biker Boys. Biker Boys is good. And then, of course, fucking John fucking shaft is in this movie richard fucking roundtree <laughs> is the vice principal playing the vice principal as if he is the captain on the police force like he's the detective who's dragged him in and is giving reading him the riot act uh playing that trope my uh, favorite my favorite uh, you're so right about this movie kind of recontextualizing noir for high school cargill and my one of my favorite elements of that is that he is the big swinging dick authority figure in this movie mm-hmm. but he's actually technically assistant VP Truman. Yes. So Richard Roundtree, who is famous for playing like the most badass cop of all time, who is the most Shut badass authority. I, I will not. I'm just talking about Shaft. I love how you left the, the silence there just so you could drop in the the theme. Oh, no, I was throwing it to you to say we can dig it, but oh. uh, you didn't throw it back. So I'm we just going to drop it. it. No, no, I've already looped it. We can Fuck. dig it. Ah, there's so much, so many gold bars. I'm losing pieces of me. I don't know what's happening. Looper, we, go watch it. We can dig it. Okay, I'm glad you can dig it. So Roundtree is the assistant vice principal, which means that he is below the guy who is below the principal. So he's like three levels down in a high school, like the least amount of power you can have. And it's still played by Richard Roundtree. I fucking love that. And then finally, rounding out the cast, you have the the femme fatale. Uh, which is played by Nora Zahetner, who you may know from Mad Men and uh, I do a couple of other movies and series. I actually have a uh, like, here's a small little personal note for those of you out there who have read any of my books. Uh, my first book is called Dreams and Shadows. And in it, there is uh, a character named Molly, who is a fairy who ends up seducing one of the other characters um, with another persona where her name is Nora. And if you read the description, uh, the description is oddly familiar if you've watched Brick, because I literally just made the character Nora Zahetrin, uh from Brick. Um, nice. So literally she is playing and the, the small little, you know, in joke for me at the time was she was literally playing this character she saw in a movie. Um, uh, and uh, and so, yeah. So my first novel has a small little nod to Brick in it. Uh, because I fucking love this goddamn movie. And Nora Zahetran is great here. She is so good. Um, and her final scene with uh, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt is such 
a mind melting motherfucker of a scene. It's so good. It's so noir. It plays all the notes perfectly. And the only reason that scene works as profoundly as it does is because Gordon Levitt and Zahetner are fucking on fire. Yeah, no. And I actually recognized her right away. I've been revisiting Mad Men a lot. I would say since the quarantine started, but really, I should say since Mad Men went off the air, uh, I just find myself revisiting it a lot. So I recognized her immediately from that. And she is absolutely great. Here's the Vim Patel. But Megan Good has probably my favorite. There's a lot of the other David Lynchian thing about this movie is that there's a lot of absurdity in it that isn't played for absurdity. It's played for this is the real world that these people really live in. I mean, one of my favorite examples is that, you know, there's the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks and then there's the wood panel parlor in this film. Like that room where Pin is set up, him and Dode, are, or, or excuse me, him and um, oh, I keep wanting to call him Dode, but he's the Tug. He's, Tug. Tug. So him and him and Tug are set up in this room that literally is wood panel as far as the eye can see. And it's, and it's just, like six and a half feet high. Like it it's is the so bizarre room. Like you could absolutely think there would be a dancing midget or a log lady in there at any given moment. And I and I love that. Also, the fact that the theater department is apparently ground zero for all of the syndicates in the school, which being a theater nerd myself, I was like, oh, absolutely. But in reality, it's like, no, we were we were not that cool. But I love that Megan Good, every time he goes to talk to her, is apparently in a different play. She's dressed uh, like she's going to do cabaret, and then she's in kabuki makeup. And it's like, what fucking show is this high school doing this month? I don't understand. And then she always has a guy in her lap. And whether yes. he's literally just a lap dog, and that's the joke, or whether he's she's always got someone going down on her whenever he shows up. Um, I think it's kind of this wonderful what the fuck like th- there's this whole element to that to that Megan Good character that either she is just turning these men into total submissives or she is sexually turning them into submissives is a fascinating kind of concept for that character and watching her in that one scene where she's breaking down she's like I don't know I don't know hey, go get my purse and then she flips on a dime and is just like you motherfucker and yeah. it's just so good like everybody here is having the time of their lives, but also fucking bringing it like absolutely fucking bringing it. There is not a weak link in this fucking cast. No, not even remotely a weak link. And and I love as he's kind of digging into this and um, brain is this, this character that just keeps coming back as sort of the, the font of information. Uh, and, and, you know, the guy who's kind of, uh, he kind of seems like he would be the guy in the detective office. Like if the like, let's say it's Fred McMurray, like if Fred McMurray had his own office and uh, there's just a, a guy there, like looking up all the information and was always calling him on the phone, the Oracle type character, it's brain. By the way, before we go any further, let me just give you your official spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Because I do want to talk about the fact that the, the deeper they dig into this, this missing brick of uh, it's, it's a brick of weed. That's missing. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was actually heroin. Is it heroin? I think it might actually be heroin. I think it's I think a brick right. of heroin. But the point is, they keep digging into this. As is this the reason she was killed? Is this the reason she was killed? And I love that we get to it, and it's not at all the reason she was killed. Like it really isn't the thing that caused her death. That's the best part of great, great, great noir films. Is the detective is on the case, and it seems like it's obvious, and it turns out it's not obvious at all. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so great here is everything is tied together, and yet it's not at all the simple 
tied in a bow that you think it is. It's actually far more humanly complicated and much more of a mess than than we are led to believe. We think it's a very simple drug deal gone bad. She knew too much. They got rid of her. Maybe she was stealing the heroin. And then it's like, oh, no, that's that's not what happened at all. Like, I could see why you thought that on the outside. But here's what really happened. And what really happened is even more fucked up. Well, I just love the tension in that scene of of Dode is going to tell Pin something something really important he needs to know about someone very close to him. And the way Ryan frames that shot is it's just Dode locking eyes with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and then Joseph Gordon-Levitt looking at Pin and just they keep moving the camera. Meanwhile, Tug's in the background just breaking up this handful of grass. And then all of a sudden, Tug's the one that snaps and goes after Dode. And you realize that Joseph Gordon-Levitt had no idea who anybody was talking about and the revelation that comes out of that. And I got to say, man, one of the most beautifully brutal things I've ever seen in my life, and again, I've already given the spoiler warning, but is when they shoot Dode in the head from that long shot under the tunnel, and that steam just starts coming up out of the hole in his skull. That shot is so masterful. I actually took a picture of that to post because, dear God, it's like everything about that shot is just perfection. You've got, you know, from the framing of the characters from the way Noah dies, from the way you get the 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 blood from the squib, followed by that steam, the way he falls over, and then the pigeons just flying. Yes, out. Um, like and it's pure classic fucking Ryan. Like it's just it's so every element of that is so controlled and so perfectly executed that it just it just plays. Like it's just it's such a great great noir shot that you'd see in a film that wasn't about high school, but the way it's framed gives it such gravitas. Um, and that, that shot is, uh, is just fucking masterful. It's just fucking masterful. I just, I, I literally watched that shot like three or four times today while watching the movie again, going, God, this shot, we don't talk about this shot often enough. Holy fuck this shot. It It's absolutely fantastic. And, and I love the fact that kind of pursuant to what you were saying earlier that Ryan Johnson had the cast read Dashiell Hammett because that was kind of his baseline inspiration for this script. He had them read Dashiell Hammett books, but not actually watch any film noir because he didn't want them to be influenced by other roles or other characters, which is probably what gives the movie, even though it's, it's borrowing language that I've heard in Cagney films, it's borrowing language that I've heard, um, you know, in the long goodbye, it's it's borrowing a lot of the the lexicon. But as far as the characters, as far as the performances, it is wholly unique. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll return after these messages. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He wrote the original screenplay in 1997, literally right out of film school, and it took him six years to fund the project. And he's still like this movie is about as indie and by your own bootstraps as you could possibly be. I mean, he has his brother doing all the music in the film. He's editing it on a home computer. It is really like 
grassroots as grassroots gets. Oh, yeah. No, this was like this was one of those things where it was just this small little movie that he brought to it's like it's in retrospect, it's hard to believe that this movie premiered at South by and not at Sundance. Like mm-hmm. this feels like a movie that would have been a big Sundance find. And instead it was a South by find um, because it was one of those movies that just wasn't on everyone's radar until it played and blew the roof off of the theater here in Austin. And then all of a sudden it was on its rocket tier um, uh, on the way up and uh, put him on everybody's radar. And it, you know, great movie after great movie until now we get to the point that, yeah, now he's a household name. You know, there's a whole group of uh, star Wars fans that fucking hate him. And there's a whole group of critics and film lovers that revere him. And he's fine with both. Um, The interesting thing about Ryan is that he very much believes what he's been quoted in the past, which is he believes that the key to any artist, especially a filmmaker, is to be interesting. And if you're not divisive, you're not really being interesting. You're not doing something new. You're not doing something that the audience isn't ready for. And that is how he goes by. And he is fine with the divisiveness that he's created because he wants to make art that people discuss and debate. And the fact that people are still arguing over the last Jedi years later is a big W up on the board for him because he wanted to make a movie that people kept talking about and debating. And, uh, and this is one of those films where it's just, it's such a profoundly weird, unique thing um, that it just, it just works in its own way. And I, I just marvel at it. And I I do love that. It feels like someone telling the story of, of something that happened to them in high school that they assigned a great deal of gravitas to, but of course memory is fallible and we always have, it's, it's like something that they said uh, that Joe Gordon Levin and Ryan both said in interviews, which is that brick isn't the way high school was, but maybe it's a little closer to the way high school felt. And it just makes me think about like when you tell stories about high school, there is always that chance that the story you're telling didn't happen the way you're telling it, but it definitely felt the way that you're telling it. So, I mean, I think that also accounts for why some of the absurdity in the film isn't played as much for laughs. Like, for example, I mean, we've been talking about Pin and how he lives with his mom. There's a whole scene that is played for intensity and intimidation where it's a scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Lucas Haas are staring across the table at each other and basically setting up this deal where it's like, I have information and uh, if I'm right, you know, you'll put me on the payroll. If I'm wrong, you'll break my legs. And the whole time his like pins mother is like, do you want some uh, do you want some juice? Do you want some milk? I know you're having milk with your cornflakes, but it's like she's literally like this, this loving, doting mother serving them breakfast it's, while they're having this interrogation. It's hilarious. There's a number of those in this movie that just make me laugh out loud of just how intentionally absurd the situations are and that's one of them you know the fact that this whole big this whole big showdown between uh tugger and pin at the end happens with mom serving drinks to everybody upstairs at four o'clock in the morning (laughs) it's just like it's it is it knows exactly what it's doing and it's genius about it it's it's just so well done um and uh uh, yeah no but those absurd moments peppered throughout totally totally work and and i love how they play and how you're allowed to laugh at that moment but then once the dialogue really starts then you are back you are back deep in it and you are in the pathos of the moment and you are really into what is happening on screen well and i mean it's like when they tell that story later about what happened in high school i bet you they tell 
the story of that interrogation scene, but leave out the fact that mom was serving cornflakes. Or I bet you they tell the part where all these guys who are mad at each other, like when Tug and, and Pin have their falling out, all these guys who are on Tug's side show up. That'll be part of the story, uh, as well as a thing that probably didn't happen, which is that everyone on Tug's side is dressed exactly like Tug. Like yeah. they're, they're like carbon copies, like control V of Tug. And it's hilarious because it's like, you know, that part probably wasn't true, but that's how it felt. And that's what this is, is this is the retelling of something really serious that happened in high school that we're sharing with you with details about the way it felt that may not necessarily have been what actually went down. Indeed. And I also love the there's so many weird edits in this movie that feel like that, that feel very dreamlike. Like there's a shot where Pin is going into the darkness of the basement, like he's walking down into the basement, but he's kind of walking backwards so that he can still make eye contact with with Brendan. And then all of a sudden, here comes Laura out of the basement. Uh, and it's like, you know, Nora, Nora is a Hetner coming out of the basement in this almost perfect crossfade. It's almost like she tr- like like pin turned into Laura. It's this very weird edit that feels very dreamlike. And again, I think just adds kind of the Lynchian false memory aspect of the movie. It creeps me out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. It, you know what else creeped me out is revisiting this now. There's a third act character thing where Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's got this really horrendous cough. And it just keeps getting worse. And I'm just I'm sitting there watching it. And I'm thinking, oh, no, Joko's got the Rona. No, Joko's got the Rona. Oh, no, no. And in, in, in context of the movie, what's so great about it is it's that whole notion of he's been beaten to a pulp and he's choking on his own blood and he may be dying in the way that so many of these noir heroes are things like you know, DOA and, and Mm. things of that nature where you've got characters who are dying and trying to solve their own death or, or what we would see borrowed for, uh, one of our favorites, man on fire, where he's just, he's been shot up and he pushes himself to the limit and is suffering internal bleeding and is slowly dying while he's doing that. And that's how they're playing it here. Um, uh, but, and, and it really works and it darkens up this whole kind of concept um, one of the other things I really like borrowed from the noir is the whole element of, you know, going from scene to scene by having somebody show up and punch you in the head and then you black <laughs> out and then wake up, uh, where with whoever wants to talk to you. Um, and, uh, and it's so great how it's done here. Um, uh, and I also love that it addresses something that almost no other high school, uh, film ever addresses, which is where are they finding time to solve this mystery or do this character stuff when they should be in school. And sure enough, we're hearing that this motherfucker has been truant throughout this entire thing. Yeah. And that's part of why the, uh, uh, why the, 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 the heads of the school are looking for him is because he's been truant and missing classes. Cause he's trying to solve a mystery. Well, apparently he's the fucking Mr. Orange of this high school because he's also like on the assistant VP's payroll. He's like the number one cooperating witness for the assistant VP. Well, I love that that's how it's part of his backstory where he turned in his partner at one point. He welched on his partner and turned his partner in because they they had him cold. And so now they feel that they can come to him whenever and tap him as a source. And he's like, no, I'm done. You've done that. But they really do kind of have him. And it's it's a very it's it's so great how they how Ryan takes those classic tropes and makes them functional in the high school universe. Like there's never a point where it's too absurd. Like it always feels like it belongs in this universe. 
Yeah, no, and I love the the scene where Richard Roundtree says, like, you know, you've helped this office out before. And he talks about his former partner, Jerry. He says, no, I gave you Jerry to see him eaten, not to see you fed. So it's it's just like, good. The fucking, like, hard-boiled dialogue in this movie is kind of fucking amazing. And I also love that there's a reason even for that, because ideally, if you're, if you're buying into a film noir, if you're buying into the anti-hero, the worst thing you could be is a snitch. But they add to the backstory the fact that he did it not because he had anything against Jerry, but because Jerry was pulling emily into this life that he knew would destroy her so it was like his last ditch effort to get her out of the life uh because he does love her so they give him a an empathetic reason for even turning in his partner something that you know i feel like in any other movie you know turning state's evidence on your own partner when you're an anti-hero doesn't really make you a likable anti-hero there you got a discipline issue with me write me up or suspend me I'll see you at the parent conference. Hold on. Now, we've we've talked about some of the influences. Now, some of the confirmed influences are things like the Maltese Falcon, Spaghetti Westerns, Dashiell Hammett, and a hell of a lot of, apparently, Cowboy Bebop. Now, I watched probably two episodes of Cowboy Bebop back in high school, um, but the movie also references Miller's Crossing, Glengarry Glen Ross, A Clockwork Orange. And, I mean, like... the. The fucking hodgepodge of things like this is this is really a ratatouille of some really cool shit. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's that's all of that's all of Ryan's stuff. He he references stuff very directly right down to when you start breaking down Knives Out. There are props on set that come from the very movies he is referencing. Uh, He's very much that way. He is that type of um, uh, Scorsese like filmmaker that really takes and 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 Tarantino like that takes very direct references and places them in the films because his movies are as much about a reference to cinema and a commentary on cinema as they are a cinematic experience. So this is very much um, Ryan's treatise on this kind of noir and it it's punctuated through it. And also one of the great things about Ryan is if you ask him, he'll just straight up admit it. He just acknowledges, yeah, these are my influences. These are the movies you should watch. These are these are the things that I was borrowing from and utilizing here uh, because he's one of us and he knows that we recognize that stuff. And if you go like early Tarantino and deny it, we're going to be like, no, we fucking we're watching the movie right here. You literally lifted this like beat for beat. Like we know we you've talked about seeing this movie. What are you doing? He's just the opposite. He's like, no, 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 it's absolutely that. In fact, go watch these movies and you will notice all the little winks and nods that I put in my films. Um, uh, uh, and, and deep in the experience. Cause that's what he likes doing. And so, yeah, all of this stuff is, is absolutely there and just, uh, waiting to be dug into and each little nugget dug out. Well, I mean, so for example, like Brendan's hair, his personality, his, even his walk, are inspired by Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. Uh, the horn signal that he tells uh, Laura to give him is straight out of Maltese Falcon. Uh, the, there are costumes and dialogue from... I mean, there's costumes from Clockwork Orange, uh, dialogue from Miller's Crossing. I mean, it, it, it feels like... No, you're right. Like, I don't know how... I mean, I guess pre-internet, it made more sense. But at this point, if you're a, a movie geek making movies for movie geeks, then you have to understand that they have seen the same movies that you've seen that are inspiring you. So to try and play it off as anything other than homage is really self-destructive. Like It really makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And if you embrace it, that just it, it you know, it it further impassions the audience. 
you know, uh, watching Knives Out, uh, which I hope we cover at some point, Knives Out is very much a movie that the more Agatha Christie you watch, uh, the more Agatha Christie inspired um, British television you watch, mm-hmm. uh, the the more the, the deeper and more profound um, the all the tiny little nuances of Knives Out get. Um, and it really is something that watching other media that ties into this enriches the experience rather than borrows from it. You don't walk away from watching, you know, watching some Dashiell Hammett and go, oh, that's what Ryan was doing. Well, I guess it's a nice imitation. It's like, oh, no, this is this is how he's completely recontextualized it and made something new out of it. And this is this is very much it's its own thing. There is nothing else like this. I've seen other movies that have tried to play with dialogue the way this movie does, and no movie comes fucking close. I got to say, one thing we haven't really talked about as far as costuming in this film, I love the fact that Jogo Levy-Levs has cuffed jeans, and I love the fact that there's a lot of like uh, like James Dean kind of white uh, undershirts going on. There's Lucas Haas, by the way, uh, is dressed like one of the characters in Dark Shadows. That's not a bit. That's the actual influence for that cape that he's wearing throughout the movie where he looks literally like a vampire on Dark Shadows. And I am fucking here for it. That may be my Halloween costume this year. If if God willing, we're actually allowed to go trick or treating this year for Halloween, I may dress up as the pin from Brick. By the way, my favorite little tiny detail in this fucking movie is when when he gets picked up in the van and the pin is sitting in the van and they've clearly cleaned out the back of the van so there's just that seat there so he's there's like standing in, and there's, there's a lamp, a lamp. <laughs> there's a lamp on why the floor to create the right lighting the, why is there a lamp in the van guys why the is right there a lamp, lamp. <laughs> the lamp is there because it is so very noir to have it there and it is perfection it is chef's kiss Mwah. i love the fucking lamp I, I want I want the movie about Ryan Johnson going to dealerships and being like, you know, this is a nice van. It's a good price. Uh, gets a lot of gas, to, a lot of miles to the gallon. Uh, where could we put a lamp? And just seeing the look on the dealer's face like, I'm sorry, did you say a lamp like a floor lamp in a van? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's essential to my movie uh, that I'm making about David Lynch High School. I, I want that scene. I want to see what that trip to the dealership was like. No, we have to we have to bring the wood paneling on the inside of the van. You don't understand on the inside. I will tell you how it happens. So there's a moment where Ryan goes to shake his hand and asks about if he moisturizes. Yes. And from that point on, it's all downhill. Uh, of him finally talking him into getting the van. Yes, absolutely. 1,000%. By the way, just to go back really quickly to that shot we mentioned earlier of the smoke coming out of the back of Dode's head, apparently that was a mistake. It's actually the compressed air from the device that was used to shoot the blood. So there's supposed to be a blood spray out the back. But uh, the two birds that are flying out of the tunnel, that was also a mistake. They refused to fly. So the shot is actually a split screen of sorts where. Really? uh, Yeah. So top and bottom, they appear to fly out immediately after the gunshot. But at the same time, you've got this device that was supposed to shoot out blood is just shooting out air. And it like all of those mistakes culminate into probably the best shot of the movie. Yeah, no doubt. It does not look like it's a composite shot. It looks like it is one fucking shot. It's it's just beautiful. I fucking love the hell out of this movie. If you haven't seen Brick, uh, this is Zach Seeker. Thank you so much for requesting this movie because, man, it was so much fun to revisit. Whenever I find a director who continues every time they make a movie to do something that delights me or really makes me think or just draws me in, like I love discovering that. I love 
discovering the ratios where it's like either this filmmaker has made nothing but movies I love or almost nothing but movies I love. Like that is so thrilling for me when you find a filmmaker that speaks to you on that level where everything they do or the vast majority of things they do hit for you. And his Ryan Johnson's movies fucking hit for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, every every movie he makes is radically different from the one before it. It is a love letter to whatever genre he is addressing, and it's all buried with stuff that is worth digesting. and And he knows how to tell a story, and I uh, I adore his films. So, uh, and this this is one of my favorites. Uh, this and Knives Out are my two absolute favorites of his, with Looper coming up behind, you know, Brothers Bloom, uh, uh, very close to that. I uh, I just adore these films. They're all just fucking great. You know, I think I'm willing to say this. Uh, I would call Ryan Johnson a modern junk food master. Like, I, it's kind of crazy to me that this is how we're dipping our toe into talking about him because he probably deserves his own modern junk food masters episode. Oh, no, absolutely. Without a doubt. He is. He is absolutely a modern junk food master. Um, if he stopped making films today, he would still be one of the most important filmmakers of the last decade and a half. And uh, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but he's not stopping anytime soon, and uh, he will be making movies probably for the next 25, 30 years easily. So we have a lot more coming up. We've got another Knives Out movie coming that I'm very oh. excited about. Oh, oh, Benoit Blanc. I will watch a give thousand. Me more, Benoit- give me all the Benoit Blanc. Like, just just layer all the Benoit Blanc on me. Uh, I will take all the Benoit Blanc you can give me. Uh, I am I am 100% there for that minute one. By the way, I, I only took about four years of French, but I'm pretty sure Benoit Blanc, if you type that in Pornhub, it's just the French Bukkake. So be careful what you search for, but I will agree with Cargill. Put all the Benoit Blanc all over me. Also, the one reference I don't think we, we touched upon is... Uh, is Raiders of the Lost Ark because you cannot tell me that Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that basement looking for that brick and using the mirror to reflect the sunlight. Come <laughs> on. That's Raiders Absolutely. of the Lost Ark, right? Come on. Absolutely. Coffee and pie. Coffee and pie. Oh, my. And you didn't hear it from me. And that does bring us to the junk food pairing. And this one was super fucking easy, Cargill, because the junk food pairing for this is coffee and pie. Oh, my. Which is uh, the place that apparently Dode hangs out. In fact, Dode is described as a, quote, pie house rat. And there was a time, Cargill, when that descriptor would have fit you and I like a tailored suit. Oh, yeah. No, Jim's. A couple of pie house rats. We were pie house rats. Two in the morning, getting a a slice of the Boston cream pie. You were usually, what was your go-to? What was your go-to pie? Oh, the Boston cream. Just fucking talking movies and eating pie. That's that's That was the fucking day. Now, granted... Old school me, early 90s, I was all about the fruit of the forest pie that Jim's used to serve. And I would lament its absence with uh, uh, with old uh, managers and the like, because in the 90s, they had an amazing fruit of the forest pie. But apparently I was one of the only people to order it. But I also discovered that, you know, a slice of pie was two fifty, but you could buy the whole pie for eight dollars. So I would just order the whole they whole pie and they'd be like, we have to it, it's it's going to take time to bake and i'm like i'll take a cup of coffee bake me a pie cut me a slice and i'll take the rest home and i would sit there and eat a piece of hot out of the oven pie uh 45 minutes later and then i would have a whole pie that i would take home and it was glorious uh i will point out that i i have a slightly different idea for a junk food pairing here slightly different go for it i think this movie needs to be watched with a sack lunch 
I think you need your <laughs> sandwich of choice. You need a banana and you need a bag of chips, preferably chips put in um, uh, in a cellophane bag that doesn't have the zipper to it. You know, old school. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Wait, 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 wait. Old man Cargill. Old man Cargill. Back when there were those type of Ziploc bags that didn't zip up uh, because they didn't have to. Uh, that is what that is. You sit down in front of brick with that and eat your lunch alone watching brick. I think that is the perfect way to experience brick. I like that because it, it harkens to one of my favorite recurring pieces of language in this movie, which is uh, who's she eating with? Who's she yeah. eating with? Who's she eating with these days? Because when you're in high school, that's literally the mark of of your association with people is who are you sitting with in the cafeteria and having lunch? Like that's that's just oh, I love that fucking. So I mean, like when he's following up on her, he's like, who's she eating with? And the way they follow that up with, uh, uh, well, if you see her, she knows where I eat lunch. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's why I was brown bagging this one. Like that's, you know. Brown bagging also a Pornhub search tab. You you know where we eat lunch also needs to be a junk food cinema t-shirt. But I will also <laughs> I will also say that uh, given the wee hours diner babbling that laid the foundation, this podcast could have very easily have been called Pie House Rats. Yes, very much. That that could have been us to a T. Guys, thank you so much for joining us uh, as we wax heavy on Brick. And thank you to Zach Seeker for being the patron to request this movie. Uh, you can always, of course, go back and listen to our back catalog on iTunes, on Spreaker, on Spotify, anywhere you put things into your ear holes. Follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. You can follow our Twitch account. By the way, guys, we're about 30 followers away from 200 on Twitch. And I did make a promise that at 200 followers... We will be live broadcasting my wife cutting my hair in quarantine. Uh, she's never cut hair before. Don't know how that's going to turn out, but we're literally 30 followers away on Twitch from that happening. So just want to throw that out there. And of course, if you really like the show, I mean, you really like the show. If you like the show more than Cargill and Brian, like pie from a diner at 2 a.m., you can go to patreon.com slash junk food cinema for as little as a dollar an episode. You can access to bonus content that nobody else gets to hear. And I will tell you, uh, the daycares in our neighborhood have decided to reopen uh, despite the fact that uh, we still don't we're still working from home and don't feel that it's safe. We still have to pay the daycare. Uh, so if you want to financially support the show, I will not begrudge you that uh, generosity. This is a great time to do it. Just going to throw that out there. Cargill, uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Massaworm. That's M-A-S-S-A-W-I-R-M. Uh, and you can find my other podcast uh, right along wherever you listen to your podcasts. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you again so much for joining us. If you want to hear more of this, well, you know where we eat lunch. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.